This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, This week, we have the great opportunity to talk uh, with one of the most important scholars writing about the history of race in America and its contemporary reverberations, Uh, my friend and colleague and frequent visitor on our podcast, uh, Dr. Peniel Joseph. Peniel is the Barbara Jordan Chair for Ethics and Values uh, at the University of Texas. He's a professor in the LBJ School and the Department of History. He's also the founding director of the Center for Race and the Study of Democracy. Uh, Peniel, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Peniel just published a blockbuster book that has been uh, widely reviewed uh, with with very positive, positive words in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and various other places, The Sword and the Shield, The Revolutionary Lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. We will be talking to Peniel about this book and particularly its relevance for democracy today in the United States. But before we do that, uh, we have, of course, uh, Zachary Siri's poem. What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? Since 65. Well, let's hear it. Since 65. Memphis, it was 1968. The janitors were striking for their rights. The reverend came to conquer hate and found on his balcony some unspoken American truth. And he saw the panoramic view of history, the bullet of the irate. New York, and three years before it was 65, the disillusioned minister came down in the ballroom, son of the sufferer of KKK crosses, suffering the slave descendants' philosophical drive, and he came on the ballroom stage to some understanding of how long it would take for the slave descendant to thrive. Chicago, it was 55 years from then, and the virus came creeping in among the abandoned factories. Black Chicagoans under the spring sun fell to the universal enemy of men, and they came from their dying wish beds to see an apparition of the time we would spend waiting for change, sighed and died wondering when. New York and time had twirled out a few more weeks. The police came and arrested 40 New Yorkers. A score in 15 were black Americans, no Wall Street shake. And as they stood there waiting in jail, they remembered how hard it is to get to the promised land from Jordan's peaks. Georgia, and it was 55 years, two days from when bullets through the minister tore. A man went for a jog and was gunned down in the street. A man went for a jog, hunted like a wild boar. And as America watched him bleed till he was no longer alive anymore, I hope we recognize something in his face, the same look as before. What is your poem about, Zachary? My poem is really about the struggle for uh, justice in America, uh, going from the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X to uh, modern issues about race and the coronavirus and uh, among other issues. Uh, Peniel, uh, Zachary's poem really points to continuities, ways in which uh, our society has not improved. Is, 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 is that a theme in your book as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think there obviously has been racial progress, but I think when we think about racial progress, I think we've tended to think about it in a linear way. So it's a linear right. narrative from, in the context of the post-war period, Rosa Parks all the way through Barack Obama. And I think Instead, we should probably think about racial progress, not just only as something that occurs and fits and starts, but something that is not linear and something that is not felt equally by the entire society. 
And, and do you think that that's uh, something that Martin Luther King and Malcolm X would have expected to see, or would they be would they be surprised at that continuity? You know, I don't think they would have been surprised. I think King is going to evolve into a more sophisticated understanding of the way in which racial progress and really democracy works in the United States and globally. And I think with Malcolm, Malcolm is coming from a different background. He had always been skeptical of American democracy, in large part because of experiencing racial trauma at the age of six, losing his father, and then really a few years later, having his mother placed in a psychiatric institution for really most of the rest of Malcolm's adult life. Um, shortly before his death, he, he visits her and sees her. Um, but he's experienced racial pr- trauma. He was in prison for, for almost seven years. So he really sort of understands um, what, what Ralph Ellison called the lower frequencies of African-American mm. life, but also mm. of American democracy in a way that I think it takes King a while. And again, it makes sense. King is the son of, of black upper middle class, petty bourgeois ministers uh, who run the, the the biggest, one of the biggest black churches in the United States, Ebenezer Baptist Church. So he goes to Morehouse College at 15. So he's really a young prince uh, in that sort of patriarchal uh, black society of Atlanta, Georgia in the 1940s. And so he, he understands aspects of racism, but it's going to take him experience to understand what the depth and breadth of, of racial injustice, what that means in the United States and abroad. Well, one of the real strengths of, of your wonderful book, Peniel, is how you show, in a sense, uh, Dr. King and Malcolm X coming together around a deeper critique of the economic uh, and structural elements of American society. What, what, what do you think were the common areas of agreement they shared in their critique of, of the sources of American racism? Yeah, I think there's a lot of commonality. I think uh, Malcolm X's talk of black dignity starts to converge with Martin Luther King Jr.'s discussion of black citizenship. So for Malcolm, dignity was an end of racial oppression, an end of Uh, the most obvious signs of Jim Crow racism in the criminal justice system, poverty, um, but also an end to the way in which Africa was marginalized on the world global stage and and the third world as well. For King, citizenship is both the end of racial oppression, but the positive um, appearance of uh, income and the end of racial segregation and healthcare and a decent place to live. So what's interesting is that for both of them, especially in the context of 1963 in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, they both come to see and converge on this idea of citizenship and dignity going hand in hand, that you need both. Malcolm comes to realize that you need to grapple with institutions within American democracy. And you see it in that speech, the ballot or the bullet. And King comes to realize that this idea of dignity and self-determination and and really this idea of identity can be used in an expansive way and not as something that is narrowing the movement or people's goals or ambitions. How do we see these uh, similar themes of injustice and uh, two steps forward, one step back, the nonlinear progress of American uh, racial justice? How do we see those themes manifested today as the world battles the coronavirus? Well, I see, I think we see those themes all around us um, just in in light of the 
the health disparities that we've seen nationally. Um, when we look at the COVID-19 different racial data trackers, African-Americans with the data that's been released so far, disproportionately uh, dying from COVID-19 um, in places that Martin Luther King Jr. marched, like Albany, Georgia, uh, where locals pronounce it Albany, Georgia, you've had 125 deaths um, from COVID. You've had over 1,500 uh, African-Americans who are diagnosed with COVID-19. Other places like Richmond, Virginia, there was a point where only African-Americans had been diagnosed uh, with COVID-19. And then we think about the public-facing um, workers and employees in healthcare, uh, in the criminal justice system, uh, in supermarkets, grocery stores, uh, delivery systems who are disproportionately Black. So when we think about COVID-19, it, it certainly has amplified already existing racial disparities um, along all social economic uh, corridors. What well, One of the really powerful points you make in, in your book, Peniel, is to remind us of, of what a touchstone Vietnam was for both Malcolm and Martin, right? The ways in which the Vietnam War became a window through which you could see racial injustice, the number of African-Americans who were put into combat positions and died at much higher rates. Do, do you see a similar phenomenon with the pandemic? Is, is coronavirus shedding or, or spotlighting the way in which these long existing disparities uh, have created, in a sense, separate worlds for African-Americans and non-African-American citizens? Absolutely. I think we see with COVID-19 um, the result of what happens when you have a society that's segreg segregated along racial and economic lines. So you're going to have these archipelagos of safety and security where people are thriving, they're able to work from home, they're able to um, have their kids homeschooled, um, where things are sort of business as usual, except for the lack of social interaction, and others where people are really, really bereft, where you have children who um, don't have access to food, who don't have access to uh, fresh food and nutritious food, um, parents who have to still somehow find a way to go out there and work. Uh, the data shows us it's less than 20% of African-Americans have jobs where they can telecommute from home. So that means eight out of 10 do not. Wow. Um, and when we think about um, 30 million people who are um, who have filed for unemployment, uh, the high point of Black unemployment is both during the Great Recession and also during uh, 1983 of the first Reagan administration where it hit 20%. And so we don't have the data yet as how many of those 30 million are African-American, but I would bet that disproportionately um, the, the numbers are going to be African-American. And so when we think about um, COVID-19, what it's really done, and Vietnam did the same thing. You know, Dr. King talked about materialism, racism, um, uh, and militarism as sort of converging to, to really eliminate our illusions about American exceptionalism, about racial progress, about democracy. And I think the, the pandemic has done that um, in really remarkable ways that we're not gonna um, understand fully until we both study and uh, get more information. But just anecdotally, we've seen all around the country uh, just disproportionate black death. And I might add what we're seeing around the country in terms of um, the pandemic as well is this convergence between um, social distancing and um, police brutality and law enforcement, because 
law enforcement, just like in the 1960s, which was really the um, tip of the spear in terms of institutions that um, uh, marginalized African-Americans, you're seeing the same thing where African-Americans are being brutalized and brutally arrested for not properly socially, social distancing in the eyes of law enforcement. And, and whites who are doing the same thing um, are not harassed or beaten or arrested or stopped. So it's been really, really remarkable. And I think the criminal justice system is connected here in big ways. And we saw it with both Malcolm and Martin. Martin was implicated in the criminal justice system in terms of being arrested starting in 1956 uh, with the Montgomery bus boycott and really facing a series of arrests throughout his whole whole career. Um, and Malcolm X was implicated in the criminal justice system, having spent seven years in prison and then really becoming somebody who was interested in help, helping um, uh, eliminate uh, what we think of as a system of mass incarceration now. How have we also in this pandemic seen a disparity in where attention has gone to where people are suffering and, and how resources have been directed from by governments and, and, and by the media? I think the attention has definitely um, been unequal. We, we've definitely been more interested in stories of, uh, of, of white either survivors or victims of the pandemic, even though the victims are disproportionately African-American. And in terms of resources, African-Americans um, have had less access to PPE, protective equipment. Um, they've had less access to uh, government intervention, including when we think about the stimulus that was passed uh, in, the, in the aftermath of the pandemic of getting small business loans, um, historically black colleges and universities who have less money and less endowments than their white counterparts have really struggled to get resources of the online technology so that they can continue to provide their, their students adequate education. So yes, I would say, right. and, and really some of this is along partisan lines in terms of uh, red versus blue states. So blue states that are typically democratic with democratic governors have had a much harder time accessing federal resources. And both Governor Cuomo of New York and Gavin Newsom of California have remarked on that even as they've tried to diplomatically um, still uh, gain favor of the federal government so they could get resources for, for their residents. So this is both, it's it, there's a racial partisanship and there's um, also just a political partisanship that fuse in a way that's very, very negative for, for Black Americans. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that, Peniel, as we're reading about the ways in which uh, certain political actors are using a, a white uh, lady who owned a salon in Dallas, right, as, as a sort of symbol of the victimization of people during the shutdown. <laughs> But yet uh, there's no discussion of the, the large numbers of African-Americans and Latinos and others who have suffered from COVID. And at the same time, also the number of them who are, don't have a choice whether to go to work or not. I mean, it does seem as if the imagery that's used uh, reflects the racism as much as we've ever seen before in our society. No, absolutely. And these, these narratives really connect with the 1960s and what Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. talked about. Malcolm often talked about the media and how powerful the media was in shaping narratives about race and racial justice and citizenship and equality. And that power has grown, even though it's been offset by social media, where people can sort of uh, reimagine these existing narratives. So I think that 
um, mainstream corporate media, and this goes whether you're th- talking about Fox News or CNN or MSNBC, has felt much more comfortable chronicling and narrating COVID really from a largely white sort of middle America perspective. So on some levels, they have every night a bunch of largely white scientists, even though there are African-American scientists, right, scientists right. of color who are narrating events and telling us what's happening. And every now and then they'll have as a human interest side, a white victim of COVID, even though disproportionately the victims of COVID are African-American, are Latinx. Uh, We're hearing reports of outbreaks, uh, Native American and indigenous reservations. So uh, there is, you you really have to go to social media and alternative media to have, uh, which, which has been good. There's been, there's been really good narratives of what's happening um, to the African-American community, but you're thinking about social media and you're thinking about certain journalists uh, who are covering this for uh, The New Yorker and for Vox and for the Atlantic Monthly. Sometimes something gets in The New York Times with something by Jamel Bowie or uh, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, different African-American activists, Ibram Kendi. Uh, But for the most part, um, this has been definitely a one-sided uh, perspective and view on this pandemic that's really a racial pandemic and a racialized pandemic. Right. What, one of the things that comes through so strongly in your book, Peniel, is how effective and savvy both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were in using the media and turning the narrative to their favor. Uh, are there figures out there today doing that? Uh, and, and, and if so, where should we be looking at them? Who are the contemporary echoes of Martin and Malcolm today? Yeah, I believe they were absolutely hugely effective in um, transforming the narrative about what what was the actual terrain of racial justice. And I think that both of them are effective in globalizing that terrain. You know, so for Malcolm, it means traveling to the Middle East and spending uh, half the year in 1964 in Africa, the Middle East and Europe. And for King, it's traveling to Ghana, traveling to India, traveling to Oslo and Scandinavia, um, traveling to Europe to share this story as well. I'd say in terms of the contemporary period, you've got people like uh, William J. Barber in North Carolina and the Moral Mondays movement. You've got the Black Lives Matter movement and um, Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi, and these different Black women who are self-identified uh, radical queer Black feminists uh, who, are, who are bending the curve um, you've got a you've got a range of different actors we can absolutely um, look for that are providing alternative narratives uh, for what's happening with with COVID nineteen. Um, we have public intellectuals, you know, everybody from um, Khalil Muhammad to Michael Eric Dyson, uh, Sherilyn Eiffel, who's head of the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund, is, sure. is a very very important voice. Uh, Vanita Gupta is a very very important voice former assistant attorney general for civil rights in the, in the Obama Justice Department. So we do have um, voices and we have some online movement TV and other uh, uh, voices online. But the mainstream voices have been woefully inadequate in terms of um, um, examining who's suffering the most. And really, what is that suffering tell us about this country? And, and on that score, I would say even the presumptive Democratic candidate Joe Biden, former vice president of the United States, has been largely um, largely silent in a way during this time period. Um, you, you would have thought that a Democratic presumptive presidential candidate would have 
grab this this crisis uh, by the throat and really presented an alternative. But I think for the most part, we haven't seen as robust a response uh, on that score as we might have liked. And, and, and why is that? I mean, many have made the same criticism of uh, Barack Obama as well. Why have we not seen more of the Malcolm X, Martin Luther King radicalism from, from these figures who speak to these communities and rely on these communities for political support? You know, I think that it has a lot to do with the transformation uh, globally. When you think about globalization, the high, the rise of, of neoliberalism, even amongst those people who are activists. So we all live in an age of what some scholars will call racial capitalism. Others might call monopoly capitalism. But this age where uh, we see further the further privatization and sort of commodification of everything. And even when we think about globalization, you know, the positives of globalization are many, but then it becomes how many people have access to the positives of globalization, right? right? right, right. And so I think one of the things we're seeing is that because that access is so uneven, when we think about those who in another generation would have actively spoke truth to power, now they are connected to powerful institutions that provide them resources as long as they stay within constrained limits. I think the power of Martin Luther King Jr., the power of Malcolm X, was that they weren't um, constrained as social justice leaders and social movement leaders by any specific organizations that they owed their livelihood to. You know, so Malcolm X could leave the Nation of Islam and still, um, um, it was difficult, but still uh, be able to survive. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he was connected to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, but he was always going to be able to survive because he did not have a think, pay, a think tank paying his salary or a university or anything, right? And so from that perspective, they could speak truth to power in more powerful ways than I think some of the really, truly uh, brilliant people we have around, but who aren't quite as courageous in saying that this has to be changed and transformed. And I think that in some ways it shows a lack of optimism because I think the thing about King and Malcolm X that people don't talk about is that they had a lot of optimism. They had a lot of optimism, including Malcolm X, because they felt that the world needed to be changed, the United States needed to be changed dramatically. But they felt that that change could come if enough people were organized, if enough people were told a narrative that fit their life story and their truths within that narrative, that change would come. And I think in a lot of ways, we've, we've lost some of that optimism, even though I don't think we should. Uh, we've, it seems lately in, in recent years that public attention to racial injustice seems to jump from one incident to another whenever there's sort of an outbreak of violence like we saw in Georgia recently. But how do we make sure that the narrative of racial injustice in America stays on the public consciousness and doesn't disappear? That's an excellent question. I think that the way in which we do that is we center racial justice at the core of our narrative of American citizenship. And even if you want to say you want to create this new narrative of American exceptionalism, where America is this exceptional country because racial justice is at the core of who we are, right? And so when we think about what we do, I agree that people have had very scattershot attention to race 
because we don't think of it as being at the core of who we are. But really, race shapes citizenship. It shapes, shapes dignity. It shapes um, our child care, elder care, food justice, food insecurity, um, homelessness, health care. So if we center that, and even when we think about these, these movements that we've seen, whether it's for a Green New Deal or Medicare for All, a lot of times race becomes an afterthought. And if we center race and this, this, this pursuit of racial justice and really um, a pursuit of anti-racist policies, public policies, then I think we're going to be on much better footing because we, we will have all been engaged in that conversation, you know? And I think that there's, there's, um, there's precedent for this. I think there's precedent. I think we, we understand um, certain aspects of American history now more than we did in the past. And that might even include um, um, what happened to Native Americans or the Holocaust or Japanese internment, because we're, we're willing to talk about that more. So if we center racial slavery, like the 1619 Project has tried to do in New York Times, which just won Pulitzer Prize, that helps us continue the conversation because we don't feel as a nation uncomfortable with that conversation. It becomes part of who we are, even though we might disagree. We might disagree on, hey, what are the solutions uh, for this predicament? But at least we're all talking about it. Right. I, I think one of the great contributions of your book is just that, Peniel, you, you, you've centered the story, re- not really around Martin Luther King and Malcolm X alone, but around the, the challenges, but also the optimistic possibilities that race offers for American democracy. As you said before, the optimism that these two men bring in their actions and their rhetoric on how they come together in a radical optimism about the ways in which America could be so much better, shining a light on the, the shortcomings and encouraging a striving to, to improve. I, I know it's what you bring to your teaching and to your work as a scholar and an activist yourself. And I've learned so much uh, as your colleague and, and friend over the years. I wonder if you might talk about that a bit more, because one of the points of each of our podcasts is to, is to provide historical background for our audience, but also inspiration, especially for young listeners moving forward. How do you see your students taking this knowledge you share with them and using it today? Yeah, I think we have to be optimistic. I think that part of what we can do and the optimism is that in the past we have faced big, big problems and big, big challenges, whether you're talking about the Civil War um, and Reconstruction or you're talking about World War I and the Second World War and the Great Depression, uh, the heroic period of the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, financial panics. There's so much. And so, one, we have to say that there are times that the nation has come together to try to reimagine citizenship, democracy successfully, right? Um, And in in those successes, whether you're saying women's rights to vote in 1920 or the Voting Rights Act of 65 or immigration reform in 65, really resound and redound and reverberate all the way up until the present. So when it comes to our students and my students, I think what I'm trying to do is give them, one, arm them with a narrative of, of what happened, a, a narrative of, of this country and its history, and then really connect that narrative to the contemporary, like we're doing now with COVID-19, and saying that this information that you have now is arming you for social impact along whatever disciplinary or kind of interest you have. We've got students who are interested in the law, or entrepreneurship, or healthcare, or nonprofits, or international development, or 
grassroots social justice activism, whatever they want to do, being a teacher, there's so much. And so if you're if you have this information and this knowledge, you're going to be much better able to have impact and really bend the curve. I mean, we start with trying to ameliorate uh, these inequities that we see, but our ultimate goal, uh, Jeremy, is really to eradicate this and to live right. in a world right. where uh, we we don't have uh, racism and we have anti-racist policies. Um, and those anti-racist policies dovetail with policies that are anti-sexist, uh, that are anti-homophobia, that that cultivate and value religious freedom, um, and really those are those are game-changing um, ideals, right? But I think we can definitely um, operationalize those um, if if we believe and we we organize, we study, um, we converse, but we we organize for social impact, right. Right. And the history allows us to understand what social impact really means in our world today. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and that means everything from policy transformation to students who are armed with new knowledge to entrepreneurs who actually want to change the world and build wealth. But they want to build wealth for a higher purpose in terms of social equity. So all those things are right there for the taking. And I think this 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 COVID-19 is a huge uh, disaster and catastrophe, but it's also an unbelievable opportunity uh, for those of us who are interested in this and for the entire world. And that's where the optimism should come in, viewing this time period as an opportunity to have the deep and lasting um, social transformation that that would make this world a better place, a more just place, a more equitable place. So, so Zachary, does this does this resonate with you and your generation? Do you see this this history of race, which is often very difficult and very uncomfortable, as Peniel has pointed out? Uh, do you see it though as also inspiring your generation uh, to to improve and pursue what what Peniel described so eloquently as as a world of, of greater social justice and possibility? I, I definitely think that social justice and racial justice are, are 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 things that young people and people in my generation are much more comfortable with, and I think it's something we've sort of just accepted as fact. But I think that the problem now is that a lot of people believe that the civil rights movement ended racial injustice in America, and we have to stop teaching it that way. We need to make sure that young people are aware of how racial injustice is very lasting in American history and, and today. Right. And I think one of Peniel's points is that the, this, this terrible COVID crisis um, points that out to people. I mean, most, most famously, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, a number of years ago in the Supreme Court decision overturning parts of the Voting Rights Act, said that we didn't need affirmative action because we had already solved those problems, right? And, and, and Peniel, I would, I would guess that you would argue that what we're seeing today is, is overwhelming evidence that 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 judgment by the chief justice is historically mistaken, correct? Absolutely. He, he, he said similar things both in Shelby v. Holder and in the Parents uh, versus Teachers, Parents United case, which really um, further prevents schools from being racially integrated, even uh, school districts that want racial integration, and certainly with the Voting Rights Act saying that we had solved these problems before. So, yeah, absolutely. We, we have not. Um, this COVID-19 pandemic amplifies these problems. Uh, there's going to be much more suffering. Uh, people are predicting um, unemployment rates that rival or uh, might even surpass that of the Great Depression. So we have a lot of work to do really on the scale of, of the Second World War for the 21st century. Um, and the optimism comes in the fact that 
democracy is still the, the, the best political system on the planet. And um, if we can get deep democracy that's connected to racial justice um, and really having uh, a vision of citizenship that's connected to uh, our highest moral and ethical values, that means we can, we can finally start to solve these problems um, in a permanent way, in a substantive way uh, that'll impact our children, but more importantly, our grandchildren, our great-great-grandchildren, uh, subsequent generations. Well, I think, Peniel, your work, uh, not just your most recent book that I hope everyone reads, The Sword and the Shield, but your work on the Black Power Movement, your work on Barack Obama, your work on so many other figures, uh, highlights uh, how significant uh, the critique of racial injustice is for the pursuit of our democratic ideals. And it's not that these critiques undermine those ideals, they actually strengthen and reinforce them as we go forward. And that's that's the optimism that underpins your work. And that's, that's how your work, I think can ins- inspire all of us uh, to work harder in these moments and to see a brighter future. Uh, thank you for sharing your scholarship and your insights with us, uh, Peniel, today. Hey, you're very and welcome. Thank you for having me. My, our pleasure. And thank you, Zachary, as always, for your poem and your, and your questions and your optimism, Zachary. Thank you to all of our guests for joining us today. And I hope everyone goes out to read The Sword and the Shield by Peniel Joseph. And thank you for listening to This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.